The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a tune Just an old second handman He'll buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is through And he'll bring you tomorrow Hello and welcome to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Orwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. So Matt, what's been going on? You've come back from Gen Con to us. I think you just said what's been going on. <laughs> <laughs> this, this small little event that hardly anyone turns up to in the middle I of know. Indianapolis. How many people? 61,423. That's like twice as many as when I was there, I think almost. Uh, it was between 30 and 40, I think, when I went. It's grown at least 9-10% year-on-year for the last five years. Uh, that, that was an awfully precise count, Matt. Did you actually go through the crowd and count them all by hand? <laughs> he did. He did. That's his dedication. <laughs> Multitasking for the win. <laughs> Mainly because I fought through nearly all of them on the way to get to anything. <laughs> so how did it feel when there was that? Did it feel significantly more crowded? or I, I did comment to a few people as we were going through that, yeah, far too many people. Really? Um, I mean, it always was, like, mega busy, but... Now even more so. Yeah. Um, seriously, I think Indianapolis has pretty much reached the limit of how many people it can physically take. And the trade hall, was it even bigger than last year or was it the same? It, it was, they, they had it expanded last year, right? So. It expanded a little bit more this year as well, but also to the fact that it was still gridlock as soon as you got through the front door. Because yeah. everyone crams everyone crams to the first few stands because they're the ones with prime position and then nothing moves. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, it, it, the crowds are definitely becoming a bit more of a problem, especially for the poor gamer him me who survived on coffee for four days and found that the queue outside every goddamn Starbucks was at least half an hour to an hour. Well, <laughs> you could always use my patented method for getting through heavy crowds, hmm? which is to make retching noises and put your hand up to your mouth and just run. <laughs> you know, everyone just clears out of your way if you do that. <laughs> Oh, there was a fair amount of concrete as far as, as far as I've been led to believe. So, no, some people probably would have been doing that for real. No, it was a good, good time, though. Well, this isn't the subject of our episode, but do you want to give us a few highlights? Anything you can share that, that stood out? Ooh. Yeah, especially in the wake of the recent announcement that uh, Moon Design have taken over the board of directors in the uh, 4K Osseum, that they'll be taking care of the, the day-to-day operation of the company. Um, speaking with a couple of people there, like getting to meet um, Rick, the new the new president of Chaosium, for example. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah. So I spent a fair while talking to them while I was offering demos at um, demos at the table. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's actually yeah, getting put to put faces to names is always good. Well, that's good. That's good. And we we've had some reassurance. We think Mike's going to stay on as uh, line developer for Call of Cthulhu, so all should yeah. be well with the Call of Cthulhu line. Good, Excellent. good, good. Um, also then, just say, catching up with friends that I hadn't seen for a long, long time, and over various stakes, you know, so either at um, St. Elmo's or Fogo de Chao. And yes, uh, Paul's already shaking his head in, <laughs> in envy. You were kind enough to bring me back some, a bottle of St. Elmo's sauce. Oh, yes. But, uh, two, you know. Two winces, that's all it took me this time. I had to get through the, <laughs> really uh, to get through through the, the shrimp. shrimp cocktail. You, you, oh, you, yeah. You've become hardened to them. Uh, it's, I see it as my nemesis. I will get through it one day without without and, any and wince at all. Was the steak, you know, as good as ever? Oh, I, I had a, a very, very large porterhouse. Um, we found that the 
you know the prime that you'd had previously. Yeah. The off um, the off menu specials are different every day. Oh really? Yeah, all, every day or every week they have a different. Um, they'd have a different thing that they put off the menu and do it as a special request. Yeah, you did kind of uh, the, the way you did explain it, it was like special and uh, you know went through the specials and described them in great detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is, is it my imagination or every time we discuss Gen Con, you two spend more time talking about fucking steaks than RPGs? <laughs> What, what is your point? That was the most significant <laughs> thing to me on my trip to Gen Con, I think, was uh, was St Elmo's. So, you know, I haven't got over it yet, and it's you, about three years ago. And it's also, he hasn't been, he hasn't seen the light. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He hasn't experienced the glory that is, uh, that is St Elmo's. <laughs> I, I haven't been filled full of the holy St Elmo's fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> but moving mm. on. <laughs> yeah, so I think the main main bit otherwise would be yeah just getting to see everyone that I hadn't seen for so long, yeah. including meet, meeting up with a few of our a few of our listeners, including um, Adam Flynn who played in um, my Message of Art game a couple of years ago. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, in fact, he actually made a comment while we were sat down um, to dinner with our good friend Todd Furler. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I sat down to dinner, um, well, lunch rather, on Sunday, um, Sunday with them, and he did actually comment one of his favourite episodes that we'd done was Relay Roulette. Aha! Uh-huh. Oh, that's very convenient then. Yeah, I know. It was a good segue there. But yeah, true. He, he did like that. Good. Um, and didn't you end up going on some kind of podcasting seminar? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that was... Uh, admittedly, I turned up to the, I turned up to the room... There were two rooms that were labelled the same. <laughs> I promptly looked in one of them and found it empty and stood outside for ten minutes waiting for anyone to turn up until I finally looked in the other door and saw them all, <laughs> saw them all sat there. <laughs> Think, oh, great, now I'll finally walk on in. Well, it? I mean, it could have been worse. You could have joined the wrong seminar and sat there giving your podcast spiel you know, while, while people were trying to talk room. about Delta Green or something. Yeah. <laughs> So a completely random note regarding Cthulhu. <laughs> so, so how did that go down then? So there was a whole bunch of you from different podcasts. Yeah, that, um, we all sat down and did nine-minute segments. Um, okay. So I thought, what's the best way to um, get a feel for the um, feel for the good friends? I know we have other people uh, chip in every so often. You, the audience, you do the work for me. All <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So, uh, so where where can we hear that? Do you know where we can hear that? Yeah, I think it's Ben Riggs who'll be putting it out via plot points. All right. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So you didn't just spend nine minutes going about to attract fish, then? I, that attract fish did come up. <laughs> <laughs> Whether he edits it out or not, I don't know. But no, we had... Um, but, oh. but, but most importantly, did you sing? No. <laughs> Mad. Oh. You're, you're well, dead, he, you're he's not a solo artist. He's part oh, yeah. of a trio. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I think Matt's talented enough to do all the voices himself. Yeah. Um, as I replied when they did a... Um, they they did one of the groups did a round robin so they tried to do like uh, everyone in the audience to add a part to build a scenario. Um, I think Ben said sort of yelled out as very specifically like Matt, you've got some work um, on Cold Walker Thulu coming up. You're the one that's got your creative juices fl- flowing. Give us an element. Screw you! From <laughs> the back of the room. <laughs> uh, and did you manage to go to the Ennies? No, no, I didn't, no. Um, I had a offer from Matt Quiet over at the Nerds Domain. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Because I helped run uh, one of the GMs for Gatsby and the Great Race on Friday night, and then I got invited as like a um, guest of honour player for a game that he ran on the Saturday night, which cla- um, clashed with uh, directly with them. Oh, no, Gatsby clashed with the Ennies, that was it, and I played in his game the, um, the next night. Oh, nice. Yeah, that, was, that was a lot of fun on both, both counts. Cool. Because, yeah, it was a good year for Cthulhu at the Ennies. Uh, it certainly was. Yeah, Horror on the Orient Express won Best Adventure. 
Uh, yeah, I, I've, we should our friends extend at, uh, our I've, congratulations yeah. to our friends at the Miskatonic University podcast with yeah. their silver any. Yes, yeah, so yeah. congratulations, chapter well earned. And of course, Q Workshop got a silver any, was it, for best gaming accessory for, is it the 7th edition dice or the Horror on the Orient Express dice? It was the 7th ed dice, right. of which I picked up four sets of those, four sets of both the different versions of Horror on the Orient Express that they had on the stand as well. Did your suitcase rattle when you brought it back into the UK? Uh, no, no. Oh, the, the the last anecdote, though, the one that I still that I did get um, in the auction the first day when they had the RPG segment, oh. someone had a copy of Horror on Your Express up there that had been opened but then been taped back together again, but otherwise oh. complete. Went for eighty odd dollars, so I didn't bid on that, but I did bid on the item immediately after. The large foam blow-up recreation of the Sedefkar Simulacrum that they used in the Kickstarter run for the um, for the Kickstarter backers oh, yeah. that played the game over the whole week, like our good friend Steve Ellis did. Yes. Um, yeah, I brought the prop, so I got the uh, the big the big ass Sedefkar Simulacrum. That An I inflatable. Home. No, it wasn't inflatable. It wasn't inflatable. It was made of foam. All right. Yeah, I think I think inflatable would have been just too creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, inflatable and anatomically correct. <laughs> That just yeah. doesn't bear thinking about. Yeah, that that, that, that wasn't the simulacrum, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> the horror. The, the horror. horror of solo play. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did pick up a load against the flames, at least that's a solo play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if there's fire involved, you're doing it wrong, Matt. <laughs> there was one... What the fuck? moment that happened to me um, happened to me that really just stopped me in my tracks immediately uh-huh. at, at Gen Con. It was during the Elder Entertainment LARP that I got to. Um, Elder Entertainment are a wonderful crew run by um, Eli and uh, Megan Levine. They're a great, great couple. And it came up in course of play that there were various hints that were being dropped that I thought, oh, I'm playing an occultist here. I'll wander over to them and say, because you don't really have like a defined character sheet in game. Uh, with, with the vast amount of knowledge that you wanted this character to have, because there was some discussion about what they wanted me to play and so on. Um, would I know a little bit about the mythos? So, yeah, potentially. What are you kind of angling at? Kind of angling at. Um, yeah, I, well, funny you should mention that. Say, Hounds, uh, Hounds of Tinderloss. I said, yeah, you, you know it in, rela- um, in relation to, like, you've read the works of Lovecraft and so you know about them and so on. I said, well, don't you mean Frank Belknap Long? Because he, um, he wrote the story regarding, uh, regarding the Hounds. And Eli stopped, uh, kind of stopped me in his tracks by saying, you know, I've never actually read any Lovecraft. I wouldn't have known. Um, I, he said, um, he said I, I don't like horror. Um, I love running horror, but I don't like playing or reading it. To be fair, yeah, yeah. I, I have actually gamed with a fair number of people um, who don't like horror films and don't like horror fiction at all, but you know, sign up to you know, most of the games that I've run at conventions. Yeah, I'm the same with superheroes. I've, I've enjoyed quite a lot of superhero games, but... I've never read any. Well, I've read the old bit, but I'm yeah, but but, but your love of the Iron Man film sets that off. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, Scott. Yeah, I was I was, I was, was going to say. I, I remember you saying about that fucking suit repeatedly for, <laughs> for Iron Man. Yeah. But no, if it, only it, had built it a third time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just stopped me on my tracks that for someone who's so frankly damn good at running a horror game that he didn't like horror and that, that he had is, he had that, no that other curious, interest, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Was that the same lap where someone commented how good an English accent you could put on? Yeah. <laughs> someone <laughs> said, no, no, it is an accent. <laughs> it always comes out like this. <laughs> On to our word of the week. 
And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week's word is non-Euclidean. I mean, technically, it's not a word, it's a phrase. I mean, it's, it's hyphenated. But also, technically, it's not a week, so I don't feel at all guilty. <laughs> it's almost as if two breaking rules make a right. <laughs> and you tell me, Scott, technically, it's only just the Lovecraftian word. Yeah, so... Because I, no- I, I think it's definitely, it seems, you know, quintessentially Lovecraftian. Exactly. I mean, I think... For most gamers, if you mention non-Euclidean to them, their minds will immediately jump to Lovecraft. But Lovecraft actually hardly ever used it. Uh, when I was going through the, my copy of the complete works of Lovecraft, you know, the electronic version of Searching, there were three uses of it in there, and one of those was in a revision. Hmm. But it does seem, you know, definitely linked with him, perhaps because he is the only person I can think of that actually uses that term, yeah. you know, in fiction. Well... Obviously, mathematicians might use it, but I don't really follow a great deal of mathematical uh, literature. But we better actually define what non-Euclidean means. Yes, please do, Scott. Well, I I don't know. I'll let Matt do this. As an adjective, any geometry that differs from that laid down by Euclid. It usually refers to hyperbolic or spherical geometries. If you need any help understanding this, please consult your local mathematician. Well, Scott, you studied maths, didn't you? You are, of the three of us, our local mathematician. Yeah, I mean, I did some some maths, like, 30 years ago. But, uh, no, I'm sorry, I don't don't want to butt in here. Matt was doing such a good job of explaining this, I think we should just let him carry on. Yeah, fucker. I did did study maths at A-level, but I remember we didn't really look at anything regarding the history of maths. We didn't look at Euclid... We looked at Pythagoras' theorem, but we didn't look, look so much at the man. The most I know about Euclid is I've got a tie with him on it. <laughs> is it Euclidean? Well, I, I, I'll, I guess I'll, it is. I'll consult do, my tie when I get on it. Does, <laughs> does, does the tie have parallel lines on it that don't meet? Uh, I think they do, actually, yes. Well, no, no, yeah, but they're not parallel at that stage because there's a little V-bit at the bottom. Yeah, but they still don't meet. They just keep going straight off the edge of the tie. Yeah, so therefore it's Euclidean because they don't meet. There we go. What, yes. is, what is hyperbolic geometry, Scott? Yeah, well, if, if any of our listeners are mathematicians and feel like letting us know how this works, because I don't remember. We, Scott met up earlier today and we were like, we sh- oh, Scott told me that we were doing non-Euclidean this evening. I was like, oh, we should research that so that we can explain it. And then I figured that actually uh, I'll probably spend a week trying to is, research what actually to be able to communicate this and still not really grasp it. Isn't hy- isn't hyperbolic just the mathematician's way of saying hyperbole? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's helping. Yeah, exaggeration. Yeah, the big sphere. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yes, like hyperbolics. Yes, but we will live. Yeah, a cute and old joke here, Scott. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, um, <laughs> what's the difference between? Okay, so. Um, <laughs> so hopefully, you know, this might inspire one of our listeners to think these guys are idiots and know nothing about Euclidean <laughs> geometry. And I do. I'll tell you. So if you are that person, come along and tell us. And everybody else, obviously. Yes, yes. Please, please, please do tell us what idiots we are. We never tire of that. And what it is by its absence that Lovecraft, you know, occasionally, not constantly, as I was going to say, went on about. Yeah, I, I think... 
I'm, I'm trying to pin down why exactly it is that people associate non-Euclidean geometry with Lovecraft. And the only thing I can think of is that, that relatively throwaway reference about the angles in, in Rillier being non-Euclidean. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people think of that as being the defining characteristic of Rillier and hence associated with Cthulhu, and so it becomes a much bigger thing in Lovecraft than it actually is. Well, Lovecraft was very preoccupied with uh, architecture, so I understand, um, which I guess in the real world has to conform to Euclidean geometry. He says, looking at you guys. I think it does. I, I think, think so. Let's yeah. say it does. So anything non-Euclidean is, frankly, it's just a way of saying that's really weird. Well, I know that's we what it says to me. I know we have at least one listener who's an architect. So, David, if you hear this, please tell Paul whether he's being wrong or not. <laughs> <laughs> Could just be how they build houses in Slough, for all we know. <laughs> what's, what's the deal with Slough? We're forever knocking Slough. <laughs> well, I'm sure we did it in the last podcast. <laughs> If you'd been there, you would know. <laughs> it's, it's like England's Dundee. It was, it was also a site that I used when I used to run a, a vampire lap down in Reading that it was always going to, this is where a lot of the kind of the bad guys hang out. This is because it's just outside the main border. It's uh, a place where generally people go and they don't come back. And how's the geometry? Yes. <laughs> and, and also it's spelt like, you know, the, the, the verb you use for the shedding of dead skin. <laughs> Do I, what? It's a slough off slough. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I thought you, I was looking at Euclidean, sorry. <laughs> okay. I was trying to figure what word you were on about there, Scott. <laughs> you do have a vast vocabulary, so I was thinking, you know, maybe I'm just, it's escaping me. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm shedding skin in a Euclidean manner today. <laughs> well, yeah. Let's get on I to some... don't want that image in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on to some Lovecraftian quotes. From Dreams and the Witch House, non-Euclidean calculus and quantum physics are enough to stretch any brain, and when one mixes them with folklore and tries to trace a strange background of multi-dimensional reality behind the ghoulish hints of the gothic tales and the wild whispers of the chimney corner, one can hardly expect to be wholly free from mental tension. From The Call of Cthulhu he had said that the geometry of the dream place he saw was abnormal, non-Euclidean, and loathsomely redolent of spheres and dimensions apart from ours. And from The Trap, with Henry S. Whitehead. It was more than a mirror, it was a gate, a trap, a link with spatial recesses not meant for the denizens of our visible universe, and realisable only in terms of the most intricate non-Euclidean mathematics. Moving on to our main topic then, we're going to have another spin on the wheel of misfortune and play Rillier Roulette. Return to Rillier Roulette. Rillier Roulette 2, Eldritch Boogaloo. <laughs> I can't beat that. <laughs> well, some people may not have been around for Rillier Roulette the first time round, so let's just give a, a pricey of what it's all about, Scott. Okay, so the basic idea is that we have a massive spreadsheet which contains pretty well every spell that's been published in every Chaosium Call of Cthulhu supplement. Every spell known to man. Yes, and quite a few unknown to man. Uh, Especially two versions of Trackfish. 
Let's not. We're not going to roll that, all right? <laughs> come on, come on. It will happen. <laughs> we are leaving this to chance. There is a chance. It Wait can a minute. Happen. Why is there two versions? Because it appears it appears in Escape from Innsmouth, which then copied into the main rule book, and then it also appears as my version in Nameless Horrors: Gather the Abundance of the Sea. <laughs> <laughs> Michael put that sidebar in there, not me. <laughs> I, I thought it was just Jesus who made lots of fish appear, but apparently you do as well. Hallelujah! <laughs> <laughs> so, be... yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never mind that. What we do is roll some dice, consult the spreadsheet of, uh, of spells, and then we're going to riff off that and come up with a scenario based upon that spell. What could be better than this? <laughs> Let's get rolling. What is that? 875. Re-roll Doesn't go it. up that high. <laughs> <laughs> We're using three custom-made dice for this very purpose. 214. That's definitely on there. Three custom-made dice carved from Shoggoth bones. <laughs> While Paul looks that up, there was actually one stall that I really was tempted to go to at Gen Con. Um, I brought Tiff, my wife, um, a set of um, gemstone um, dice. Made from blue to, uh, blue cat's eye, but there was well, one well, made, taken from real cats. That's that's barbaric. No, it's like it's like tiger's eye. It's just a different gemstone. Yeah, that's even worse. <laughs> They're injured, <laughs> but they were really cool dice. Tiger but, but the um one of the dice uh, dice stands artisan dice, which I'm definitely going to next year. This this is on my list now, with along with Fogo de Chao and St Elmo's. They have dice from exotic materials, not just gemstones. You can buy a D20 made from meteorite metal. For a hundred dollars a dice. Nice. Meteorite. Yes. Wow. Enchant painting. This is an odd one. Um, This is one of the few times where there's mention of a spell name. Um, It's actually specifically in I think fifth edition upwards, or maybe only sixth edition, um, for the stats for Joseph Kerwin in the core in the core book. He says that he has enchant painting as a spell. Enchant painting does not have any published mechanics in any Call of Cthulhu book. I can remember going through it when I was doing seventh ed and looking at some of the the spells and things in some of the tomes and some of the the uh, the Lovecraftian the personalities. I'm like, yeah, they don't appear anywhere. These <laughs> are just like oh, so some, names. Some of them, yeah, some of them do. In fact, all of them they are known by at least another. They potentially are known by another name, and that's referenced in a scenario or referenced in a source book somewhere. Right. But no, enchant painting is nowhere. Okay. No book ever. <laughs> so it's an anomalous, just a name of a spell, and that's all there is. And and that's the one we rolled. Yeah, typical. But it's so, quite yeah. an evocative one. Yeah, yeah, and it gives us free range to make shit up. Yeah. So what is, what what could it do? Well, for for me, when I think of enchant painting, you're making a mundane item into something more a useful magical tool, like enchant cane could drain magic points out of people. Mm. But um, the thing that I thought of um, with this is going along an amber kind of vibe, going with um, like a trump artistry. Um, use a painting as a method of communication to contact the person that you actually see in the painting. This makes me think of Thunderbirds. You had to bring it down to a different level, didn't you? <laughs> do they do that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the eyes light up and, uh, yeah. It's all going along with superheroes to me, I'm afraid. Carry on. <laughs> you can take a degree of inspiration as well from the uh, spell candle communication, which is where you yeah. light a candle and then somewhere else on the dark side of the earth can see the, um, can see or potentially hear the voice of the person that's trying to speak with you through mm-hmm. the candle mm-hmm. and such. 
that potentially you uh, make a power roll against the subject of the painting. Maybe it's got some of their blood invested in the invested in the pigment of the oil work and so on. But there is a definite there's a definite sympathetic connection between the painting and its target. At which point you make the roll against them and you can open up conversation, not see each other, but at least hear each other. Then. This also opens up an interesting converse, um, conversation. What happens if you try to um, contact the picture of someone who's dead? Well, oh, what I was thinking was, what happens if you try doing this on an abstract painting? What if you try doing this on a Jackson Pollock? Yeah, the, I was just going to say, you always meet Picasso, but that, that's <laughs> me. <laughs> no, but, but that, no, that's actually a serious thing. That you know, if you were, you know, you're talking about contacting you know, a named person or something like that, but if you came up with something completely abstract and non-representative, that strikes me as being quite a... a something non-Euclidean, Scott. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking it's a way to contact a hound or Tinder loss. Yeah. Yeah, or, or something yeah, like I mean, that. If but, somebody's like in a kind of some sort of... Uh, you know, um, some sort of, kind of trance state. You know, they've taken these hallucinogens and gone into this kind of uh, shamanistic trance and they're doing this weird painting. When you kind of try and commune with that, I mean, maybe they've connected with some kind of mythos entities um, yeah. and been channeling, you know, a passage to Yogg-Sothoth or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that could be incredibly powerful, particularly... If you created a painting like that, used it as your vessel for communication or, or your means of communication, I think if you contacted something as powerful as a great old one, I mean, for a start, it would probably destroy the mind of the artist. It should do. But it would also, I imagine, leave some kind of residue on the painting. So you'd end up with this kind of weird, you know, perhaps not disturbing to look at just because of what it represents, but this painting with an aura whereby you don't know why, but looking at it unnerves you. Well, I mean, paintings do have that, that, that kind of have that quality. Mm. And I think if, if we say it's like a channel to some mythos thing, it's maybe not a very good channel. So you're only getting, it's not like blasting your mind out every time you look at it, but you're getting kind of like, if you listen really hard, you can just hear a whisper. Oh, you, you know, yeah, that yeah, kind of yeah, cumulative thing, perhaps. So if you had it on your bedroom wall. Or if someone's particularly sensitive. Hmm. So, I mean, let's say, you know, you've got this painting, it destroyed the mind of the artist, it was the last thing he or she ever painted, and it's ended up in some collection somewhere, that perhaps, you know, some years later, someone's gone through, found this, and it's made an impression on them because, you know, it, it, they've looked at it and it, it stirred up something inside them. So they, you know, they bring it out and they put it on display in an art gallery, some small percentage of the people going past are going to make some contact with it. A very small percentage, I mean, let's say either a fifth or one percent, mm. uh, you know, actually do make that psychic connection. So, you know, maybe one in every hundred visitors through this art gallery suddenly ends up with a, a psychic connection to Yogg-Sothoth. You know what? I think I've got a sequel to my Message of Art game coming up. <laughs> <laughs> the thing it makes me think of is the picture of Dorian Gray. Mm. I mean, there's an enchanted painting, if ever there was one. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it could be that, you know, in that it's keeping him young, but um, it could be that it's a kind of a consumed likeness type thing. So you've got, you know, a painting of one image, you know, in the attic, and you look totally different. Or well, you just take on the, the image of the painting or something like that. Or alternatively, what if... Dorian Gray, or his equivalent in this, was actually of uh, the Innsmouth blood and was using the painting as a way of trying to stop his physical transformation. And so, yeah, every time you see the painting, it just looks a bit more ichthyoid and Bactarian, uh, but he himself still looks as human as he ever did. Remember that comment you made earlier about having a wide vocabulary? 
Yeah. He's, just, <laughs> he's just bringing in more Lovecraftian <laughs> words there. Except I got Batrachian wrong there, I think. Yeah, yeah, you did, but yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, it's good. <laughs> A for effort. D minus for execution. What can we do with this in terms of scenario then? Should we go with the, uh, the, the kind of communication one? Can do. Um, I quite like the idea of the, um, almost frankly, hiding the personality that okay. you, be you become the person that's in the um, in the photo or in so the So it's a bit painting. like a consume likeness kind of thing, or you yeah. become them, or you take on their image I think you, as a disguise. Whatever you make the painting become is what your face becomes. So God help you if you get Picasso to suddenly draw you. Yeah, I. Does it have to be you, you know, who actually does that? Or if someone goes along and vandalises the painting, you know, say goes along and just scores the eyes out with a, a knife, does or that Or just mean draws, it? like, uh, the, the, the round glasses oh. and a moustache. <laughs> or, or draws a cock on your forehead. Yeah. yeah. There is there is a, um, I think it's uh, Vault of Horror or Vault of, Vault of Terror. It's one of the old portmanteau films that um, Hammer did. Oh, yeah, that yeah. involves Tom Baker as an artist, that he goes oh, around yeah. and um, he paints uh, the paintings, portraits of all the people he doesn't like, and then, for instance, he goes up to one of them, draws a red dot, and the guy blows his brains out. Yes. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Actually, yeah so yeah. it could be anyone that goes along, because just remember that that painting just gets hit by, like, an, um, a bucket of water gets thrown on it by accident, and he gets so, run over by a bus. So here, here's the thing, then. It's the artist that is enchanting the paintings, and he's a portrait artist, and he finds that doing the portraits of people gives him power over them. Oh, and and perhaps you know he's he's been doing this for some time. He's got quite a lot of portraits stored up. Um, maybe the first indication that uh, there's something going uh, that there's something weird is going on here on a large scale is the fact that he's got some of the older ones warehoused in a lockup somewhere. There's a fire. They burn up, and all of a sudden there's about fifty people across the city who just spontaneously combust at the same time. I'm liking this. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so and then you've got a whole lot of unexplained death. Um, potentially, if you're this, would probably be good if you, your PCs were members of the, your investigators were member of the police force, or in some way maybe hired as a investigator. Oh, there you go, the typical trope of private investigator. The police have looked into it and gone spontaneous human combustion fifty times over, <laughs> and labelled it as a what the fuck file and put it away in the drawer. That one of the family members comes to you and says, "No, I really want to know what happened to my boyfriend." Maybe she's also comes to the investigators having been burnt. Maybe that it um, she was right next uh, right next to him when he went up like a Roman candle. Yeah. So that she's say covered in third degree burns and so forth. And yeah. And these are rich patrons that he's painting, and he insists he paints them at their home. But in the paintings that he's got, you know, in his workshop, he can draw on like little doorways. Or things that he can creep in oh, through the yeah. night yeah. Yes, and yeah, like yes. steal stuff or do whatever nefarious things he wants to do. And there may be some kind of little trace of this door, but you can't really access it in the real house. That's that's almost getting into uh, sapphire and steel territory oh, with yeah. the with the photos. Mm. Uh, the fellow who just appears between yes. different photos and so on. Well, I was thinking in terms of making him a really dangerous antagonist as well. You know, if the PCs go along or you know, start giving any indication that they're investigating him, what if he just kind of gets a digital camera, takes a few snaps of them, and then when they're gone, starts painting the picture, their pictures from that? 
uh, and and just starts screwing around with them. You know, all, all of a sudden, you know, he say cuts the bottom of the painting and one of the PC's legs falls off. <laughs> We're getting into Enchant Photoshop here for a <laughs> modern day take on it. No, he's still got to paint it, but he's using the photos as reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but I'm thinking on from that. It oh, could yeah. Be yeah. Like enchanted uh, Photoshop. It's like a Photoshop voodoo doll. Oh, yeah. oh God, run it through Google Dream. Oh! <laughs> Suddenly, man becomes human. Shog off. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, yes. <laughs> Eyes everywhere. <laughs> so the investigators are going to kind of be put onto this by uh, maybe one th- one uh, one case, but then there'll be other cases that sort of have similar yeah. courts. So when they visit one case, they're not necessarily going to be able to put that together with a painting. But then, you know, when they go to another one, they're going to see common themes and so on. Yeah, that well, maybe I mean, lead them to the artist. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, perhaps even they don't, you know, they don't know that, you know, these 50 deaths were linked. Perhaps it was even hushed up a bit. And they don't realise until, you know, they contact, you know, say someone they know in the police or something like that. And it's sort of, oh, yeah, actually, here's our, the file that we never made public about it. And they suddenly realise that this one case of spontaneous combustion they're investigating is actually 50 people who went up at the same time. Mm. I think, you know, that moment where they're reading through this you know, handout at the table. I think that's a great what-the-fuck moment. It's 50 people at the same time. Yeah, that's not right. Coincidence, nothing more. I, I, and, and I guess the other nice thing about it is it's a bit of a red herring because a lot of experienced Cthulhu players will look at that and think, oh, fire vampires. Yeah, that's always a good thing. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, at least in my mind, if I was writing this up, I would have this that the, the fire was an accident and that these were actually test subjects that he was gradually going to build up towards uh, trialling out, so a bit of trial and error to see whether his method had worked. But he's actually gearing up towards not maybe something bigger, but maybe something more poignant with a, uh, with a smaller circle that he's working on his masterpiece. And we can't ignore Pickman here either, can yeah. we? Yeah, that's if, true. If you're thinking about artists and, uh, and the mythos. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, he, what, he, I mean, Pickman's model... If, if he's got access to those kind of models, then what can he do with those? Well, I mean, if if you painted lots of ghouls like that and made them aware of what you could do mm. uh, to the paintings, then you suddenly have a, a, a ghoul army that you're extorting mm-hmm. yeah. into, into doing your will. <laughs> I, I can just imagine you know, get, the, the artist gathering a couple of ghouls there. You know, they're getting ready to snack on him, and he's standing there with a picture of one of them, you know, pictures next to them, and standing there with a jar of turpentine and says, yeah, all right, splash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, you, do what I want. <laughs> Enough to be going on with that one then. I think there's a few seeds there. I'm yeah, gonna, definitely. Fancy picking that one up myself. Yeah. So <laughs> shall I pass around around the uh, the cup of joy round to you, Scott? Oh yes. We have one hundred and nineteen. Okay. Uh, so we rolled one hundred and nineteen, which is the general entry for gate spells. Now I really like gate spells because they are, I, I'm, I'm drawn to things in the mythos where people think they're useful, but they are in fact really so bloody dangerous that uh, using them is just going to screw you up horribly. Mm-hmm. And gates definitely fit into that mold, especially if you have enough power to go one way and not the other. Yeah, and you get that really cool chart. Which has all the uh, you know, the massive numbers in it. Yeah. yeah, the place names and the massive numbers for mm-hmm. the, the, the millions and billions of miles that you can go. <laughs> yeah. Is it the 
if I'm going to use a gate, I'm not going to travel like down the road with it. I'm going to go to somewhere nice and exotic. I'm going to go to the, li the Library of Solana. Who wouldn't? Yeah. That's, mm -hmm. that's the destination of choice, really. And, and this is one of the cool things about the Gates build, because you've got all of these things in the mythos that are mentions in stories. You've got these locations that are you know, hinted at or perhaps described loosely in the Call of Cthulhu material. But you generally don't have any way of interacting with them as an investigator. But, yeah, here you have a gate spell. And, yeah, like you say, you can suddenly go to the Library of Solano or you know, into the Court of Asathoth. Yay. So you've, yeah, rolled, so your, <laughs> uh, you've rolled your roll to, to make your gate mat. Uh, you've, you've, you've all designed it and done the incantations. It should be opening to the Library of Solano. Perfect. In the, uh, you know, in the, in the, I don't know, the, the paperback section. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, are you going to step through now? Of course I am. Yeah. I'm sure it all worked fine. Yeah. Nothing hard, can go wrong. Hard vacuum, death. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Piping. Yes. yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, there, of course, is the first thing, which is, you know, because, just because you've connected the gate there doesn't mean that the other end of it is going to be somewhere that supports human life. Mm -hmm. Well, there is that there is that chance of instant death, <laughs> so, but there's also just the slightly more benign version that you know you just end up somewhere you didn't really want to be. Yeah, what's what's this Fomalhaut star here? Uh. <laughs> but but yes, I mean even if it is somewhere that you know that isn't going to kill you instantly because of the vacuum of space or being absolute zero at the centre of a star. Mm -hmm. Then yeah, there's the yeah you know, the other factor that you may suddenly be encountering uh, godlike entities, uh, and that rarely goes well in Call of Cthulhu. No, true. But I can only think of one time where an investigator stepped through at least a form of gate, um, the ultimate gate, and ended up coming at least coming out the other side. Yeah, dear Mister Carter. Ah. Uh, yeah. But. Does this uh, does this version of the gate spell only cover travelling through space, or does it's a separate one that covers time? Isn't yeah, it? Um, temporal vortex originally was in fearful passages, but they right. did expand upon it later. But I think yeah, they, they, this is enough to get working with just that idea of a gate. I so when you create this gate, it stays there afterwards, doesn't it? I mean, anyone who goes through it then mm -hmm. uh, can. Um, uh, yeah, it can expend the power. Goes yeah, to, to creating it, re uh, to create the gate requires a permanent expenditure of power. So right. you're making a permanent thing. There. A lot of power as well. But you, using power. it also requires. Oh no, using it re just requires magic points. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe depending on distance, but otherwise, I think part of me thinks yeah. it might be a flat cost. Yeah. But oh yeah, it's one fifth of the power originally uh, required to create the gate. There you go. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, again, it is related to distance just indirectly. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea that, you know, you can create a gate in a location or an object or whatever that seems comparatively benign. And then it becomes maybe not even like a trap, but certainly something that people accidentally activate. And, I mean, if it's a gate to, say, somewhere on the other side of the world, that's fairly cool. Um, so, you know, the, you find this you know, old mirror or a cupboard or something. Now, this is getting a bit Narnia, but let's say, let's say a mirror or something in the attic that used to belong to your granddad. Uh, you pull the dust sheet off it. You know, there's a, a coat of dust over it. Uh, you rub your sleeve off uh, across it to see, you know, uh, to take the coat of dust off. And, you know, the, the, the next thing you know, you're... Um, falling through it. Yeah, you're, you're, you're falling through it and then you're in downtown Johannesburg or something. There's Mr. Tumnus. 
<laughs> I was just going to think people calling you a fucking prawn, but <laughs> you had to go Narnia. At least I had some class. Come on. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that, that, that's that's a fairly exciting thing. First of all, I mean if I were designing something like this, I'd you know if that that you know, object had been sitting there for ages. I might be tempted to say that, you know, the enchantment on it had degraded over time or gone slightly wrong. And so, you know, it, it creates this gate, you work out that you can get back through it and, you know, you go off and you tell your friends, oh, this is really cool. Uh, yeah, we, we go off, we touch this mirror and we're suddenly in Johannesburg. Free holiday! Yeah, and, and so, yeah, you, you go up, yeah, you go up to the attic together, you touch the mirror and this time it goes somewhere completely different. Uh, yeah, you're on yeah. the mount. You're on the slopes of Mount Everest. Yes, or or maybe you are at the Library of Solano. Maybe mm-hmm. it suddenly you know, shot you halfway across uh, the galaxy. <laughs> I'd be interested in who you know. You said it was like the grandfather had made the gate originally. You know, many years ago. Uh, why did he make it, and where was it linked to initially, and why? Because hmm. that that's kind of provides you with a starting point to sort of build from. I think it makes a great, especially if it's something like you say that it's a nondescript item that you wouldn't think was a gate. That's a wonderful get-out clause for a cultist. They run into any room in their house after they've been discovered. They jump through the mirror. Who's going to think they've done that? But no, they're, they're obviously hiding in some priest hole or something. I'm sorry, but if you say it's a mirror, I think a lot of people will yeah. think that. Yeah, the, the mirror was the first thing that came to mind. Because when, when, you, when you, as a, as a keeper, you, they're going to say, "Oh, well, we'll go into the room. What's in there? Well, there's a window." It's slightly open, and then you're gonna, you've got to say, there's a mirror, and there's a desk, and, and they're going to be like, whoa, hop, did he say there's a mirror? There's a mirror, we're going to look at the mirror. Yeah, he's obviously gone into the mirror. Yeah, <laughs> where else? Never mind oh, the open okay. window. Okay. I think I'm going to throw that in as a deliberate red herring then, next yeah. time, just to be on the safe side. Yeah, yeah you, you find out that your granddad actually enchanted the chamber pot. <laughs> The Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you wanted a name for the scenario, you could call it Deadpan. <laughs> so, can we come up with something more uh, plausible for this uh, for this gate? Then, what could it be? Let's not say mirror, because that seems a bit. It's, it's yeah. a good one, but it's it's been used. Uh, a drawer I... in a chest of drawers. Oh, actually, just leap into a drawer. Oh, 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 oh just a yeah, maybe even a rickety old chair. Uh, it's a chair that doesn't look like yeah, it, it, it's it's rotted through with woodworm. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to support anyone's weight. But if you sit on it, then you know you're suddenly somewhere else. Oh, a rickety rocking chair. Yeah, yeah. So it's even it's even rocking back and forth as they go in the room. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's nice. Take r- woman in black riff there. Yeah, yeah. So why did the grandfather create this? I, I, I think that, you know, just saying, oh, he's a cultist is a bit uh, easy. Yeah, it doesn't really give us anything to go with. I'd, actually, I'd go with maybe that he isn't a cultist, because I, I like some games where there isn't really an inherent bad guy, but just yeah. what they do ends up messing up the world around them. But maybe the um, maybe the old grandfather has a debilitating illness. Maybe he can't travel that well. Maybe he's um, got arthritis, or maybe he's so there's some other, well, maybe consumption, wasting disease, whatever. Um, but he does want to go out and see the world one last time. 
And so he create maybe that's not just one of these things. What happens if he's got a house full of them and they oh, all yeah. go to different places? Oh. And it's his way that it's like, oh, I'll sit on this chair and I'll get a few hours walking around Johannesburg, or this chair and I'll get a few um, a few moments on a remote desert island in the South Pacific. Yeah, it almost becomes a bit like the Lost Room, where you've got all yeah. these innocuous items around the house, each one of which is the, a, a gateway. Uh, but you know, if he say miscasts some of them, it could sort of be, oh yeah, we, we you know, I, I never touched that hairbrush because you know that that's going to take you somewhere really horrible mm-hmm. but of course he dies before he gets to warn anyone about this yeah or even that maybe having so many gates in a close um, close proximity is starting to break down um, space around him yeah and, and of course the other thing is that you know perhaps um yeah, he's gone through one of these gates at some stage, encountered something powerful on the other side, and they've realised that there's a gate there, and they've worked out that they can get through the other way. This would be an interesting, because uh, one of the bits of the setting which I found um, detailed in a couple of books, I think it appears in Cthulhu Dark Ages, and also appears in uh, one of, I think it's Sacraments of Evil, or Dark Designs, one of the Victorian settings, um, the, the concept of limbo that it's a place between dimensions that you can go and that you just see these glyphs hanging in air, um, like um, almost like St Elmo's fire or glowing symbols that are hovering in the mist, and each one is a gate. Mm. So it's almost you sit down in your chair, you pop into limbo, and then you've got access to all these other different gates around you, and that maybe that's what's that kind of intermediary between the two. Yeah, I've always liked mm. the idea that there's, that there's something between the gates, like a little passage you go down and mm-hmm. kind of what might be in that passage, you know, what may, might be lurking in it, stuck in there or something. Yeah. It's been trapped when both ends closed. Oh, or, or worse than that, what if there are things that live there natively? What, 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 what kinds of things would live in the gaps between worlds? Yeah, if those gaps are kind of like Tillinghast's, you know, the, the, the world Tillinghast sees through his resonator... Um, into that kind of other dimension. If that's what you're travelling through, then you know that, they, they, those things would be there from beyond. Mm-hmm. Well, they used um, travelling through time was going through beyond in Project Rainbow, because that's where the uh, where the Eldritch ends up. So you've got you've got at least some precedent there. So if, the, if these gates are in this house, why haven't they been triggered before? You know, why, why, why are they? Why did they suddenly come to light in the scenario? But the the fact that yeah, the grandfather's been there for donkey's years. He's been using them all along, and he well, never let you upstairs. Yeah, that's right. He's a recluse. Well, he's never let anyone into the house. Well, maybe maybe just into the house, but yeah. never you know never never he never yeah. allowed upstairs. And then he dies. Yeah, and and you're there sorting out his estate, mm-hmm. going through all his old stuff. Or he was housebound, but you knock for him one day, he's, there's no sign of him, yeah. you can't find a body. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, there's just, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a rocking uh, chair that's moved slightly in one corner, it's disturbed the dust, and there's just a few specks of blood beside it, and that's it. I can see that working quite nicely. I think actually I'll go with the more grounded in realism approach and actually have it that you find him dead. Mm. And that then it is going through all his going through his estate, rather than it being a missing persons case, that it is no the guy is the guy is outright on a slab. Well, but then why have you? What what motivation have you got to you know to to look through all this stuff? And pure everything? greed. You want to go in there and you want to get as much of the good stuff as you can before anyone else does. Yeah, but but I suppose if he is missing, that does give you an incentive. Perhaps if you've had a couple of bad experiences, you've gone to a few places where it's really dangerous. If you actually genuinely care about your grandfather, <laughs> you might carry on taking risks to go off and try to find him if you think he's lost. 
That's true. Somewhere. Mm-hmm. Or even combine the two ideas. He is dead. Some, um, are you a, a friend of yours? Maybe you're playing like the husband or wife of the person who's gone into catalogue all this stuff and they've gone missing while looking around the house. Yeah. Or how about he's not actually dead. Somebody's He's gone through the gate. Somebody's captured him and they want to know how he does this. Yeah. Maybe someone else that's tried it before and got or something similar and got stuck themselves. Hmm. Enough to be going on with? I, I, I think that's certainly a good seed to, to get a scenario mm. going with. Uh, I think you'd need to develop an antagonist a bit more in that. You'd need to you know, flesh out the locations. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a few different approaches you could you could take with this. I mean, the easiest one by far is just sort of almost making it a metaphysical dungeon crawl that you've got these gates going off to different places and you know, it, it then just becomes about the exploration. Mm. The problem with that is it can become a bit aimless. Uh, you know, you, you're just yeah. going off to the next weird place, experiencing a few weird things, and then pushing off back to the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least if there is some agency behind you, know, whoever's taken the grandfather, or you know, or perhaps you know, as I said, if there's some risk of something coming through, uh, then you know, perhaps you're trying to find ways of you know containing the threat. You know, maybe destroying the items doesn't destroy the gate, but actually, you know, makes them uncontrolled and wild. Mm-hmm. And for our third spell... 357. Unfortunately, not a tract fish. Oh. Bespeak the end of the day. Oh, I remember this one. <laughs> ah! Paul should definitely remember it. I used it enough in Tatters of the King. So 357 is Bespeak the End of the Day. Um, It's a variation of the Dream Vision spell, as as appears in the campaign Tatters of the King. Um, I know I... um, I know that Paul, in particular, when uh, when he ran the campaign, that I used this spell quite a lot. I relished every use, Matt. <laughs> so, so, what does it actually do? It's a really a keeper's worst nightmare to it a degree. Sure is. It's hey, I want a vision of the future in the campaign. Oh, what? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it's done in such a way that not only do you gain a vision of the future. But the keeper is then has to bookkeep to make sure that that vision comes about, okay. and that you are protected from the rest of the mythos by you having used this spell to make sure that this will happen. You, you see, that's much too nice. If I were writing this spell, I'd say that you know, if you don't find a way of making this vision happen within the next forty-eight hours, something catastrophic happens to your character. That would be a much nicer variant. <laughs> <laughs> I know Paul would have definitely got on better with it. With yeah, that. and Matt may not have used it so much. <laughs> <laughs> did, did Matt use it just to make you cry, Paul? I think he did. That no, was, I, that was the general effect. No, it, I wanted it, to see the future, damn it! Yeah. Um, uh, give Matt a spell and he will use it, regardless of what it is, I think. So, so is this subtitled Spoilers? Well, no, I think it, it just it says I kept that it, it appears pretty in cryptic, there. I think. <laughs> Now, there was one in particular where you made it very blatantly clear because you even pretty much use exactly the same description. That when um, you see a you see a particular NPC overlooking a balcony that overlooks the Lake of Harley, and that then he turns and sees you and then walks away, and that oddly enough, when we got to a certain place, we saw that person through that window. They turned at us, they looked at us, and they walked away. 
See? I think there was the, almost the gleeful, yes, I finally got it in there. <laughs> See, Scott, that's the way you do it. <laughs> I, I, I'm just amazed that Matt met an NPC in one of your games and didn't shoot him on sight. <laughs> no, we, we blew him up when we finally got to him. Um, we, we threw copious amounts of dynamite at him and it was the only bloody way we got him. Oh, that's nothing. <laughs> and then when other said NPC that we'd already... I think, what, what was it? We dressed him up in women's uh, women's clothing, left him on a park bench. Oh, yeah. And the other um, I think we did something else terrible. Oh, that was it. We ran him over with a coach as well. Um, that finally, when we we met him at the end of that the end of that chapter, point, shotgun to the point back, back of the head and point blank blew his brains out and went, finally, you're dead, you son of a bitch, you're dead. <laughs> Well, that wasn't part of the spell. Scott's looking confused. <laughs> that was, that, that was an added bonus. Okay, so how do you actually use the spell usefully? So, I mean, this is giving you a hint for something that's going to happen. I, th- I think it'd be great that it's almost that you um, that someone, an NPC, has cast this and foreseen their own death. Not only then that they know that something terrible is going to happen, but they are bound to make it happen. Everything that they do will make this thing happen. So it almost becomes like Final Destination then. I've not seen them, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you've had a... Well, in, in that case, yes, you've kind of had a vision or you, you know that, that fate is on your tail and, and your time is limited. Um, but it, it is a difficult thing for the Keeper. I mean, if, you're, if it's a work of fiction, you know, mm. a, a film or a book or whatever, then the author has got complete control over it and then they can manipulate it and, and have that end in mind and then you know direct everything towards that but when it's a role-playing game that's a much more difficult thing so I, I mean I think yeah that one Matt you mentioned about the, the figure on the balcony I mean there's a kind of a, a key scripted part later on in the, in the game that it was kind of fairly easy to incorporate but in a in a more free-flowing game you can give a fairly cryptic you know, something you think is going to happen and then sort of manipulate events to make that happen, but it can be quite hard work. One thing that occurs to me, though, about this spell, right, is obviously the characters who are casting it believe in the results. So let's say you wanted to use this in a scenario. Uh, how about if it's, you know, say some kind of almost like fraudulent medium or something like that, who you know, has managed to convince uh, the player characters of the efficacy of the spell and that he or she can cast it on their behalf, cast it on them, okay. so they get the, the, these visions. What they're actually doing, though, is a form of hypnosis and, and just you know, planting these ideas, you know, sort of, this is your fate, this is something that's actually going to happen, and just you know, planting the ideas in, in PCs' heads so they believe that this is the spell that's happening. Mm-hmm. To try to manipulate them into certain actions, and it's sort of you know, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I, the, the most blatant thing would be uh, you're, you're 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 making me the beneficiary in your will in this. In this I'm scene. signing everything over to Scott. But but, but mm-hmm. yeah, you you could come up with more subtle things than that. But would that lead them to do it? I mean, if if somebody predicts your future, are you going to try and drive towards fulfilling that? Well, especially what, if you've been hypnotized to do so. Yes. Well, what what happens in this? in this particular spell if you don't fulfil the destiny? Well, it's not really that you fulfil the destiny, it's that 
it's, good it's not it's something it's not something of, of your volition it's you're seeing the future that is going to happen well so it's I, not that you bring it about it's just that then okay let's go back to this fraudulent medium that you know let's say they have worked out that you're know, a deeper version of the spell that allows them to cast it on someone else so they cast the real spell mm. on a target first mm. of all the spell gets you know the the, the the spell gives the target a vision of something that is actually going to happen so they see you know they see this vision of something that's going to happen and you know they, then it happens the the uh, the medium at the same time gives them dire warnings and sort of you know if you start breaking the strands of fate then your reality will come crashing down upon you you'll, you'll bring your know, death and destruction and madness onto yourself but happily you escaped it there you know, and but you know we'll, we'll try it one more time and see whether you know you, you gain a, a better vision of something that's going to happen and that's the point at which they actually hypnotize the person and plant you know the suggestion of something they want to happen in there Hmm. So you're using it as a almost um, a bait and switch. Yeah, yeah. So you've got you've you've got these potentially gullible characters who are being goaded into doing, you know, maybe you know, carry out murders or or thefts or something like that for you know for this fraudulent medium, you know, taking risky actions that the medium wouldn't take, you know, himself. Because what uh, what PCs or what investigators aren't aren't gullible. Yeah. <laughs> so we're casting these. Uh, as the MP, as the player characters, yeah, cast them perhaps on the player characters. You know, you could, um, or or it could have, yeah, or it could even be um, a way of of getting the player characters involved in the investigation of some cult or you know some dodgy practice that this has been done to a friend of theirs, and they're going in to try to find out what happened, try to find out why you know their old friend from college, you know, just randomly gunned someone down in the street for no. No very good reason, and is you know is now babbling in a madhouse, uh, saying that if they did it. You know, if they hadn't done that, fate would have destroyed them. Hmm. Actually, having a fate as an antagonist as well, you could um, like we did with nameless horrors, create our own um, entities. I can't think of any entity that is in connection with fate itself or fate, chance, and probability. You've got space and time, which is yeah. Yogg-Sothoth, but that's a very quantifiable, very definite, um, absolute term. But that random chance and chaos... Well, I suppose chaos, you've got a little bit of Haster in there, which is probably why it, why it features in Tatters of the King. Or possibly Azathoth. Yes, that's, that's a good one, actually. Azathoth doesn't appear in enough scenarios to my liking. Well, we've probably gambled with our sanities enough for one evening. With a D8 and a D and a D hundred, <laughs> and sadly, no attract fish. Ah, like you say, next time I'll memorise the numbers. Damn it! <laughs> next <laughs> time on Rillier <laughs> Roulette. Next time, gadget. Next time, <laughs> the revenge of attract fish. <laughs> In fact, it's almost parallel with Jaws, really, isn't it? So it's uh, Relay Roulette 3D <laughs> and then Relay Roulette 4, The Revenge. <laughs> this time it's personal. <laughs> well, we hope that's given you enough to play with. Yeah, I think there's a few uh, few ideas in there that I might try and pick up on. Uh, so for now, it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me.
and uh, of course Q Workshop getting uh, Silver Annie for uh, their their seventh ed. Was it their seventh ed or their? Um... <laughs> Editing Tell point. me again, what was it, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> the specialist dies. <laughs> <laughs>